Welcome to the Start Me Up podcast, part of the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network in association with Muller She Wrote Media. I'm your host, Kimberly Johnson in D.C. Today, my guest is Democratic strategist Simon Rosenberg. He was the lead strategist for the DCCC when Democrats flipped the House in 2018. He's the founder of NDN.org, New Democratic Network and the New Policy Institute, a liberal think tank and advocacy group based in Washington, D.C. I chose him to interview because his Twitter feed is gold. Basically, he just gives us the facts and shows us why we have reasons to be optimistic for November. But before we get into it, the Start Me Up podcast is independent, supported by listeners, and it's woman-run. A great big thank you to everybody who supports the show. If you enjoy today's podcast, visit patreon.com slash startmeup. Check out all the tiers. I do include a tier with a much shorter intro and no ads. You can hear the free shows on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and they're followed up by What's Up, a show just for patrons where I talk about anything that comes to mind. It's a little more personal, kind of like my online diary. Visit patreon.com slash Start Me Up. And don't forget, you can find Start Me Up on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. Now, please enjoy my conversation with Simon Rosenberg. Welcome to the show, Simon. It's great to be here. (laughs) Well, you are somebody that I really want to talk to. When I discovered, I think I discovered your feed when you were first posting about Roe and how it affected uh, new new registers for Democrats, uh, just polling and stuff like that. So we have a lot to talk about. I love your message. You're positive. You're optimistic. One of the things that I've been um, focusing on lately is optimism. Even though in my personal life right now, I've got some things going on that I'm just like, I'm so freaked out and upset, but I'm remaining optimistic. So I think this is a perfect kind of theme for the show. And, you know, I guess the, where I'm going to start before we get into some of the things that you've written and some of your tweets, um, there is a lot of skepticism right now from people who are just feeling doom. And one of the things that I you know, try to point out to people is in 2018, we had these doomers and they were proven wrong because Democrats won in 2018. And same thing, I kept hearing from so many people, Trump's gonna win, Trump's gonna win in 2020. Clearly that was not the case while, uh, Trump got more votes um, than he did the first time. Biden got, what, seven or eight million more votes than Trump. So there's, I think there is something to the idea that when we, you know, optimism is contagious, and then it's also something that when we have a collective expectation of winning, we have a better shot at winning. So uh, I just, you know, I, the first thing I want to ask you, and I hate to do this because I don't, I, I, I absolutely love David Hogg. But this morning, David Hogg was tweeting out about how he has like, first he said he had zero faith, but now he has negative faith. So before we get into the specifics, I'd just like to hear your overall kind of take on things, and then we can get into the weeds. So much you just put on the table. And I I just want to say, first of all, I really appreciate sentiment, uh, because I, you know, I've been in politics now for more than 30 years. It's hard to believe. And I just believe that if you're not an optimist, um, this is a very tough business mm-hmm. uh, because there's you have to overcome obstacles every day. And what I've learned from doing this is that those obstacles can be overcome. Mm-hmm. You can win elections you're not supposed to win. You can pass bills that weren't supposed to pass. You can get people supporting you on things that would never you never thought you could do. And I think that if you don't have a plan for victory, you can't win. If you don't 
score, you can't, if you don't shoot, you can't score. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I do think that to your audience, um, there is no question that the BBB fight that happened last year, the debate and fight that happened, I think sapped some of our confidence. Mm -hmm. I think it was a grinding um, experience that party, we were fighting with each other and not with the other side. And I think that we, it was a rough experience. And I think that what um, I always believed in this election and the reason why I'm extremely optimistic about what's going to happen this fall is that I think the pundits were always wrong. I, I wrote a piece back in November. I went and found this the other day showing that Biden's approval rating and the congressional generic, the so-called decoupling, had already happened by November. And and what I wrote was that, listen, I think people have to recognize that the Republicans have made an enormous strategic error this election because they ran towards a politics that had just been rejected by the American people twice mm -hmm. um, in overwhelming numbers. And that once they did that, once they ran towards a politics that had been so overwhelmingly rejected, that they were they were making this an atypical midterm. This was no longer a typical midterm. So I always believed that if Biden could get a little bit more credit for the good things that he'd done, and if we indicted them as being extreme and and you know uh, extreme and out of the mainstream, that we could make this a competitive election. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's happening. And and so I do think today, you know, what happened was that you know the country was reminded about the extremism of the Republicans mm -hmm. due to these mass shootings that happened, Uvalde, the ending of Roe, the abortion restrictions, the January 6th committee, the extremist candidates that they have that remind us every day about how, you know, how they've lost their way. And that that w shook up and woke up the anti-MAGA majority mm -hmm. that showed up in such large numbers in the last two elections. And, you know, there's more of us than them. And if we're motivated, we should be able to have a good election. And I think that's where we are. So I am optimistic uh, about it. And it's based on, you know, data. It's not based on me being Pollyannish and, <laughs> you know, me having wishful thinking. This is all data-based, right. you know, and and so I think all of us should be optimistic about the opportunities that we have this fall to not just, and get, we need to get out of our defensive crouch and go on offense now. That's really where we gotta got to be. Well, I want to ask you about something that you wrote back in November. But before I get to that, uh, I know that you have, I think you have some new polling that you've been tweeting about. And I just wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. So what's interesting about, you know, we, a lot of Washington revolves around the, the poll averages on 538. Mm -hmm. It's, it's sort of the, the place that we all go. It's the touchstone, the common data place, right? And we all may have our own data and the committees may have their own data, but it's sort of the place we all revolve around as a common data set. And, you know, the generic, the, what's so the so-called congressional generic, which is the simple question, which is, are you going to vote Republican or Democrat for Congress this fall? Um, has, I, you know, I, part of the reason I think you found my feed is that I was documenting in the days after Roe that it was moving very swiftly towards mm -hmm. the Democrats. And, Polling doesn't usually move swiftly. It usually takes six months, you know, six weeks, four to six weeks for any kind of shocking event or any kind of big change to sort of cycle through. Because there are a lot of voters that are not that focused on politics. Mm -hmm. And it takes a while for things to sort of move through the whole population, right? And the, the way I like to describe it, it's like throwing a, a rock into a pond. There are these concentric circles that play out with public opinion. But we were seeing right after Roe ended, really dramatic movement 
quickly. And I was surprised by that. And it signaled to me that we could be seeing a very sort of substantial and significant change in the election. And I sort of stuck my neck out as an analyst saying, I think that, you know, we're in a new bluer election as things are shifting four to five points. And I had a lot of skepticism about that. But what happened was the 538 average wasn't moving very much. Um, and that's because the way that average is set up is that it ingests enormous amounts of polling and it's like a, a tight, it's like a you know big battleship. It only moves, you can only start, it takes a while for it to shift. Yeah. In the, in the last week or so, it's really started to move. And, and this is what was always going to happen with the 538 average. And so it's now, it was going to take a while, mm -hmm. right? And we've now seen it move two and a half points towards the Democrats in the last few weeks. That is a big deal hmm. because that is that means that this idea that you could be a holdout and say, no, 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 the race hasn't moved. The Democrats haven't benefited. There's no refuge any longer. There is no there is no data suggesting the, the election hasn't moved because if 538 moves two and a half points towards the Democrats and not because I th actually think it's four and a half. It's four wow. to five points, but it's It's always a lagging indicator. Right. Oh. So now that that thing has moved two and a half points, people like Amy Walters, the Cook Report and all the people that sort of set opinion about this, they can't really hold on to this idea. Oh that this is gonna be a red wave or that the election is favoring the Republicans. It's now clearly a competitive election. Mm -hmm. um, and and I just don't think there's any way to get to a place any longer given the available data to say that, you know, all the, that is anything other than a competitive election. Why does that matter? It matters because I think, I agree with you. I think if we thought we were going to lose, we were going to lose. Mm -hmm. I think we have to believe that we've got a shot. And yeah. now we do. We have a shot of keeping the house. I think we even have a shot of picking up seats in the house. Wow. I think we have a shot shot of keeping the Senate. I think we have a shot of keep picking up seats in the Senate. It's much more likely that we keep the Senate and pick up seats than in the house. But I think the Republicans are showing unbelievable weakness right now. You know, they had terrible fundraising, candidate mm -hmm. fundraising in the second quarter, shockingly bad fundraising in the second quarter. They're not at 50% in any major poll anywhere in the wow. country. Wow. Uh, we just did some polling in May of Hispanics where we found, despite conventional wisdom, Republican underperformance with Hispanic voters, not Republican overperformance. And, and wherever you look, what you're seeing with Republicans is a divided, angry party that's still fighting with itself, underperforming fundraising, underperforming on their polling numbers, you know, aging leadership in the Senate who may have misread the election, right? And and I think that what you're seeing with them is weakness, struggle, whereas with us now, you're seeing momentum and strength. And that's why I would rather be us than them, you know, heading into this election. <laughs> so why do you think, um, while Nate, uh, 538, I should say, is, is putting us ahead at two or up two and a half, but you think it's 45 Five. So it shifted. So we're still down in 538 by two tenths of a point. It's just because of the nature of the way they calculate it, it takes they pull in so much data that for it to move, it, it's going to take it just takes a long time. It's, okay. it's the it's the nature of the way they do the math. Okay. And so what happens, though, so it's going to be two to three weeks behind reality because they still have older polling. Right. But what happens with that average, and this is really important to understand, is that at some point, they start dropping the older polling. So at some point, oh, all the okay. pre-row polling is going to fall out completely. Gotcha. 
right? Interesting. And once that happens, that thing's going to shift another point or two points because things really changed after June 24th. There was a there was an abrupt change. They still had pre-row polling in their in their math, right? So that's going to eventually cycle out, and this thing I think will catch up with where the reality. Remember, you know, one of the things I wrote about this week is that in the last week, this is really significant here, right? For the psychological orientation of the city here in Washington, four very prominent Republican polls came out in the last week showing Democrats with a three-point lead, a four-point lead, a five-point lead, and a six-point lead. Hmm. That's a four-and-a-half average. Four-and-a-half average, we gain seats in the House, Hmm. right? And that's Republican influential Republican polls from organizations like the Chamber of Commerce, right? All the Republicans in this city read all those polls mm-hmm. this week. And I'm telling you, they got nervous mm-hmm. because that's their own people telling them this election is slipping away from them and that they've got trouble. And that's when I realized that, you know, now we've seen Republican pollsters showing Democratic strength. Nate Cohn, Nate Silver acknowledging it's a competitive election. The mm-hmm. Cook Report just put out a revision saying the Republicans are still going to win the House, but not by nearly as much, right? You're sort of seeing the whole commentariat of the city, right? The people who set opinion here have gone through really significant changes. And even Nate Silver wrote this remarkable thing, which is he said, anyone who's basing their electoral analysis on the idea of of basing it on Biden's approval rating made a mistake and is wrong. (laughs) And there's other things, these other factors, the thing I was talking about earlier, there's something more powerful in this electorate right now than disappointment in Joe Biden. And that's fear of MAGA. Fear of MAGA is what drove the last two elections. Mm-hmm. It, dro- it More people have voted against MAGA than any other political movement in American history. Two very high turnout elections. Democrats won those elections mm-hmm. by an average of six and a half points. MAGA, fear of MAGA drove the last two outcomes, gave the House, Senate, and presidency to the Democrats. Fear of MAGA is now the most dominant factor in this election too. And it should be wor- very worrisome to the Republicans, particularly as their central indictment of Joe Biden was high gas prices mm-hmm. is obviously right, gone yeah. to a profound change. Right? Yeah, yeah. Fear of MAGA. I like that. I think, you know, it's funny because um, I, I absolutely believe that we should utilize fear. Uh, Rachel Bittekoffer talks about this, too. Um, not in the way Republicans use fear, but using the truth to scare you, you know, and it's like, that's yeah. what scares the shit out of me is the truth. And so, you know, the truth of what could be with a fascist Republican rule. So, um, you know, I just, I want to throw in there that everybody who listens to my show knows that even though I did not want Roe to be struck down, I did think that the striking down of Roe would lead to what you were talking about. And for that reason, I preferred striking it down as opposed to just quietly gutting it because we've been quietly gutting it for a long time and people haven't been paying attention. Now people are paying attention. And so this brings me to what you wrote. Now this was back uh, in November, even though a lot of us had an idea that this row decision was coming, you were writing this piece without having any kind of issues with row. So this was that what you wrote was why 20, 2022 won't be 2010. So you have a list of, Excuse me, you have a list of things that you uh, are talking about. COVID, economy and jobs, climate. We're going to go over each of these. Healthcare, social, uh, uh, social security and Medicare. Now, I want to ask you, though, uh, I want you to talk about this, but I also want you to touch on the climate part, considering the bill that uh, Manchin yep. uh, is, you know, 
hopefully this is going to go through. So I just I kind of want you to touch on what you wrote yeah. about back in November. Yeah. So that that what you're referencing there is this um, new set of analysis that I do that I that I call the saliency index because I think that if I can get a little nerdy here on data <laughs> for a second. Um, the uh, as if I haven't been already, but to get a little more <laughs> more nerdy is that I think one of the ways we went wrong in the last year is that this idea that all these things that Biden was proposing are popular. And so therefore, if we pass them, we'll benefit. Right. And that may seem obvious, but it's not actually really how politics works. And the reason why is that something can be popular, but not important to you, meaning that you can be like, yeah, I'm for the Yankees, but it's not. It doesn't matter to you, right? Yeah. It's not important. It's not salient to your life. Yeah. In politics, what matters is saliency. It's the stuff. It's two or three things that are driving your vote, mm -hmm. whereas everything else is kind of a nice to have as opposed to a must to have, right. right? And where I think we got confused is that we lost sight of the things that really mattered in saliency. So I've been doing this report every month or so using data from the Navigator poll, which is a terrific poll that if your listeners um, want to have a good poll to go back to every two weeks, Navigator is a terrific uh, product. I take, they, they ask a question, what's the most important issue to you? But they give you four choices mm -hmm. instead of one. So you get more data, right? right? You get more, 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 um, more texture to the data. And climate has been a top three or four issue hmm. for all going all the way back to uh, November, which is the first time I used that data and that piece you're referring to, I've been updating it. And I think that democratic operatives in this town don't really understand how central climate has become to the democratic coalition. Um, it is, and it's, and I think it's reflective of young people and their mm -hmm. priorities. We're a very young party. We have a lot more young people than Republicans do, right? Um, and, and I think that that's why this mansion bill or this thing, the reconciliation bill that Joe Manchin could easily give the Democrats a one or two point boost if we pass it as we head into the election. And I think for a few reasons. One is it's going to give us a more powerful closing argument mm -hmm. to make, which we need. I mean, mm -hmm. we've had a little bit of an issue of getting credit for the good things we've done. This will, I think, add ballast and weight to our offensive positive argument, which is, you know, you elected us. How do we make your life better? Mm -hmm. You know, we will have a more powerful argument. But the second thing it does is it also brings the family together. That the divisive uh, uh, fracturing of the party that happened around BBB, I think this brings us all together. It gives us something that is popular with everybody. It's a sense of a family achievement, right? I yeah. think it will bring us together okay. as a family as we head into the final battle. And the third thing, though, that's really important is that it finally gives us something that's clear for young people to vote to vote for us as right. opposed to vote against, against them. We yeah. need to give young people who are overwhelmingly democratic, 15, 20, 25 points democratic, um, but who are the most, the least likely, or the most likely not to vote right. in the midterms. If we can boost youth turnout through a very strong close on climate, it could be really consequential wow. in this election. So I, I think this is a really big deal. Um, and, and I'm hopeful that Schumer and the president um, you know, we're so optimistic about this because they knew that cinema would come along and, and they were just working to finalize the deal, normal legislating, right? As opposed to us waking up tomorrow and hearing 
Senator Sinema say she's not going to support yes, uh, the deal, yeah. which we just don't know. And and I so I'm optimistic about it. Yeah, I just don't think Schumer, gonna, I, Schumer and and the president would have jumped out as far if they didn't right. really feel they had it in the, the back. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you because I keep seeing people say Sinema's going to kill it. So I thought, well, they wouldn't make this big deal out of it if they hadn't even you know gotten her opinion or found out her vote or something so yeah i do think that it's promising and i can't tell you why it's a gut feeling that i think this is going to pass and you know it's incredible i'm with you i'm with you it's it's my gut too and and i think that she can't stop this this is too important and i and i think that what i think the negotiation is is what does she get in return for her vote she's got a few things that she wants just like you know we've got some of the democrats who are in the house who are concerned about the salt provisions they'll come around too mm-hmm. they just need to get something right this is no normal negotiation that happens right so i i think that um i'm optimistic that um all this will come together and we'll have an even more powerful case to take to the voters in in the final final months of the election well that's such good news um okay we have to take a quick break and we will be back after this message Hey there, it's Kimberly. If you'd like to support the Start Me Up podcast, just visit patreon.com slash startmeup. You'll see all the different tiers. You can make your choice and you will have my undying gratitude. Thank you so much. Okay, we are back. Um, You know, I just also kind of want to go over one of the things that you listed in that article was COVID at 64%. Now, I want to ask you about that and, and what you think, because right now we're dealing with the surge uh, it looks like California's going back to masking, and I know that's just going to be really hard. If, if the entire country has to feel that they have to put, I mean, I put masks on all the time. It's not an issue for me, but there's a lot of people out there who hate it. So what is it that, you know, with the 64%, obviously you wrote this in November. How does that fit into the... Uh, yeah, sure. I, I think, look, I. it's a it really interesting question, and I'm not sure I've really settled in my head about what the answer is, but let me give you a sketch on this, is that Biden's approval rating on COVID is still, he's still very positive. Mm -hmm. And he's also, when you look at Democrat and Republican, Democrats have like a 15 to 20 point advantage on COVID. And so I I don't think this is going to, you know, what I'm most, sort of the worst scenario here is what is what I'm most worried about is with schools. I mean, Mm -hmm. I have two kids and I have two kids in college and one in high school and and I'm, you know, I think for young people, the idea that they will have to wear masks again uh, when they go back to school or have other activities curtailed, it will be devastating uh, for them uh, because I think the, the just the fatigue is so incredible. I, I just think at this point, I would be surprised if if this hurts Joe Biden and the Democrats because I think that most voters are aware that we have tried really hard mm-hmm. and the Republicans haven't. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just think my own, I, and by the way, I'm not sure that's how this is going to play out, but I think that the likely scenario is this is kind of a neutral issue in the final, um, in the final two months and that mm-hmm. other issues will matter more because yeah. this is sort of baked into the cake, so to say, <laughs> yeah. speak as they, as they say. Um, but I do think, look, I, I think that one thing for your, your listeners to think about is what's the Republican closing argument, right? Like if, you know, I was, I almost, I almost wrote something today. It's like Republicans rather than giving an olive branch to swing suburban voters, gave them dead kids, you know, 10 year olds getting 
uh, you know, having to carry babies to term mm-hmm. and a lump of coal, right? Like, I mean, there there wasn't, not only was there no olive branch, but they actually did things that were immensely hostile to the interests of swing suburban mm-hmm. voters that they needed to come towards them. And, and what I just, what I want all of you to think about is what is the Republican really, what are they really saying that they're going to do, mm-hmm. right? If you, if you're going to vote Republican, right? What are you voting for? Mm-hmm. What your listeners should be thinking about is what do the Republicans really, what are they offering yeah. voters? And I think that they're, the Republicans made a series of very big mistakes this election that may cost them the election, right? And one of them was that they didn't provide swing suburban voters any reason to vote for them. Mm-hmm. And they didn't think they needed to. They think that they thought that Biden's low approval rating and and inflation, we're going to just hand them the election, and they were wrong about that. Um, and they made it. They made a really big strategic error because there isn't really any reason to vote Republican if you have doubts about Democrat. If you voted for Democrats in 2018 and 2020, there's no reason to vote Republican this time. They haven't mm-hmm. given you a reason. I mean, there is no economic agenda. There is no health care agenda. There is no climate agenda. There is no mm-hmm. anything agenda. What there is is, you know, more mass shootings and you know, abortion extremism and, um, you know, a jumping up and down about the economy without providing solutions. I mean, the last three Republican presidents led to recession and spiraling deficits. Why would you ever trust them? You know, they've been among the worst performing economic stewards of the American economy in in recent years in all of our history. Mm -hmm. And why would you turn to them to fix a struggling economy? So (laughs) I think that they don't, I I think they made a a really like big strategic error in how they read this election cycle. And it shouldn't be surprising to us that a party that's been overtaken by extremism Mm -hmm. is not capable of operating in the real world, Mm -hmm. effectively the real world of politics. They were operating, I think in an imaginary world a fantasy world yeah the fake world uh, fox, <laughs> the fake foxlandia as greg greg Sargent calls it right this sort of this fake world that they invent every day mm-hmm. they invent a fake democratic party that isn't the real party that yeah and they live in this performative fox news world every day and if you live in that world every day and you're not connected to reality you can make big errors mm-hmm. about what's happening in the real world and I think it's possible they may that they may have blown this election and wow. given us a chance to, you know, keep both chambers. And and I and I think now for us, going back to your sentiment, the sentiment of your show, is that we have to now get out of our defensive crouch. <laughs> we have to go on offense. Yeah. And we gotta leave it all on the playing field, right? That's what our voters and the American people expect out of us and it's what we need to do. Um Okay, so now what I kind of want to jump over to Garland and the DOJ and just kind of preface this with that, you know, I'm sure you've seen and you've seen me screaming, but you've seen all kinds of people on Twitter. Now, granted, Twitter, political Twitter is its own little universe and doesn't necessarily reflect the outside world, but it absolutely does reflect what political junkies are thinking and the absolutes who are going to vote. So there's a lot of um, there's always skepticism. There's so the, uh, it's like the Democratic Eeyores. Oh, my God, we just love to dwell and wallow in our self-pity. But now we got you know, got all this screaming going on for so long saying, you know, Garland needs to be fired. He's not doing anything. He's not doing anything. And now we find out from Carol Lennig, the Washington Post. Yes, the uh, DOJ, according to four sources, is investigating Donald Trump for his role in overturning the election in 2020. So aside from everything else we know, aside from the one six, I mean, we are, I guess it's not aside, but including 
what's been going on with the public hearings um, and what I what I can understand, I think I saw it was like a Chris Hayes or something like that, talking to a woman who did focus groups on Trump supporters who still like Trump, but, you know, uh, were watching the public hearings. Their take on him now is, OK, he might be he might have too much baggage for 2024. And so blah, 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 blah. Maybe they're going to look toward Ron DeSantis. But my question here to you is. How do you think this, I mean, how does this play into the midterms? Because we do sure. know the, the public hearings are getting, you know, a lot of views. Uh, we understand that Trump supporters are not necessarily being swayed into saying, oh, the Republican Party's bad. We like Trump. He's just got too much baggage. So, yeah, like, where does this fall for, for November? Sure. It's a great question. And I think I want to start by saying, remember, it doesn't really matter that it's not swaying Republicans because yeah. <laughs> the, we ha, we won 51.5% of the vote last time. Our coalition is the majority coalition. The anti-MAGA coalition is the majority. All we have to do is show up. We don't have to get one additional vote to win the election, right? Whereas they have to get more votes. They have mm. to flip votes or get us to stay home. Yeah. And I think that both of those things are less likely today given what's happened in recent months. So, so first of all, Let's not worry about Republicans, right? Let's worry about our majority coalition. And and I, I think that I think that what we've learned, I think something very significant has happened in the last month in regarding January sixth, which is we know the Department of Justice has already prosecuted eight hundred people. Wow, yeah. Right? It's the largest criminal investigation in American history with really no near peer. And and that's only happened in a year and a half. They have burn through the, the capacity, right? Just think about the, the system behind that, right? That was able to move in that many concurrent cases, right? Deal with this amount of complexity of data, of, of you know, all the arguments and the facts and everything else, the 800 cases they've been able to move. Now let's layer on top of that, that what we've learned is that there was a conspiracy to overturn the election that involved several hundred Republican elected officials and staff across the country, from White House people to you know, uh, Clark in the Department of Justice to Rudy, but also including the RNC chairwoman who admitted on camera that she participated in this whole thing. We know that uh, Republican Party chairmen in Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia have been subpoenaed. We know that Republican officials in Wisconsin and Michigan have been subpoenaed as part of the Department of Justice investigation. Right? We are, and this is not this is the what you're talking about, Garland. Mm-hmm. All Merrick Garland has to do is now add 200 to 300 people on top of the 800 to prosecute, to move into prosecution for this conspiracy to overturn the election. And that that, that would involve prosecutions of prominent Republicans for years, for years. Yeah. Party chairman, the RNC chairwoman, Senator Graham, Senator Johnson, House members, right? So what we're looking at is really potentially this an earthquake in our politics, mm-hmm. where the this enormous error that the Republican Party made uh, by trying to overturn the election, that justice has comes right, mm-hmm. and and that that justice takes down Republican leading officials in key battleground states in in Washington for years, right? And if you add to that what we know is going to continue to happen with these abortion restrictions where it's going to be years of stories of 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds being forced to give birth and women dying on the table in the middle of a miscarriage and all the things that are going to happen, 
the Republicans have lost more votes. I mean, we've won more votes in seven out of eight of the last president of the mm-hmm. last eight presidential elections. Mm-hmm. That's a better showing than any political party in the history of the United States. Wow. The recent run of the Democratic Party. No party at the electoral at the at the popular vote level has ever done that well over that long a period of time. Right. Mm-hmm. If this if the two these two big errors the Republicans have made, which is the abortion restrictions, which are barbaric and yeah. and 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 you know, extreme. And then this massive crime committed by the leader of their leaders of their party. Don't you think that could shift another two <laughs> to three points permanently? Yeah, I would hope. And then you're looking, then you're looking at a Republican party that cannot win elections for 25 years. Wow. You're looking at really the end of the Republican party as we know it, I think. And, and I think that, look, I was right about my predictions about what was going to happen in this election. Right. <laughs> I, I projected much of what we're seeing now, I predicted back in November and May when I wrote my second generation set of pieces. I don't think that the political system has really processed the brand hit that the Republican Party is going to take by the combination of these barbaric extreme abortion restrictions um, and and the fact that their party really did try to overturn a, a, an election in the United mm-hmm. States. Which is why that one of Joe Biden's great legacies, whether he runs for re-election or not, and, I, and we won't know any of that till the spring. It's not even worth speculating about, is to wall off and ensure that Merrick Garland can finish the job. Yes. Because if they've already done 800, they can do another 250, mm-hmm. and and that 250 includes the president and Mark Meadows wow. and Rudy Giuliani and Ron Johnson and Lindsey Graham, and. Make your lists, uh, Ron Ron and McDaniel. I think they're coming. I think they're coming for all them. And I think that the back, the backlash from Republicans over that is going to be far greater than the 800 people that they've thrown under the bus, right? Um, And so, you know, I think I think there's big stuff afoot here because it's we know now. I just want to be clear to your listeners: the idea that there was a criminal conspiracy involving hundreds of Republican officials is a fact mm-hmm. that's not a an opinion that's that's sky is blue stuff you mean There's it no wasn't question. antifa <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> right no it's crazy i mean but but it's it was it's a fact yeah. that trump led all these things well the crowd just showed up he didn't know it was happening right even yeah. though it was called a march to the Capitol, right? right like all of this stuff where people try to minimize the mm-hmm. severity all that's gone now it's yeah. all here and, you know, we have to I just want to say we have to give Adam Kinzinger and yeah. Liz Cheney extraordinary props yes. for the courage that they've demonstrated to take on their own party uh, over having lost its way and done crazy things. Um, and, and obviously, Benny Thompson and the whole team have done an incredible mm-hmm. job. What public service this really is yeah. for all of us. And I think Nancy Pelosi, this is going to be Nancy's greatest achievement mm-hmm. as as speaker. That this committee, the way it was built, the bipartisan mm-hmm. nature of it, the outcome that it's having mm-hmm. that, um, will be Nancy's probably uh, among a, a speakership that has done many remarkable things. This may be the most important thing that Nancy's ever done. Yeah, and it's just a shame she gets. I mean, I, I, I bow to that woman. And uh, unfortunately, you know, some I don't see it all the time, but I absolutely see criticism of her because she's older and doesn't understand what's going on. It's like that woman is one of the most capable, intelligent. I mean, she's so outstanding. So I just have to put that out there because 
I bow to her. So, <laughs> and I totally agree with you. Um, I want to kind of move over and, and, and talk about something else that you wrote. Um, but I want to preface it. And it's basically talking about Democrats and loudness and Democratic messaging. Mm. Um, now, I, we're going to go over what you talked about in this little piece. But, well, I, don't, I shouldn't say little piece. But, I mean, um, I want to add, and I tweeted this, that, you know, a lot of uh, – Democratic Party is big tent, right? So we've got centrists, we've got progressives, we've got people all over the place in our ideology within the party. We're very hard to unite in in many ways. Obviously, we love to fight with each other. We love to dwell in misery, clearly. Um, But I, I think that one of the things people don't always realize is, you know, there's all this criticism, and I've definitely criticized Democrats for some of their messaging. But what I also realized and what I want other people to realize is we're all part of the messaging. So, you know, when, when you have thousands and thousands and thousands of people on Twitter saying, we're going to lose, uh, I don't trust the Democrats, all the negative Democratic bashing that I see is part of the messaging. Some of it is also coming from mainstream media, because I don't think, in my opinion, I don't necessarily think the way that they report on these two parties, uh, is is good for the country all the time um but but most importantly i think it's you know people out there on twitter people out there talking to their friends that is a form of messaging and so it's something that we should all keep in mind when you know we're talking but it's one thing to hold party leaders accountable we want you to do this and we want you to do that we also have to recognize what they have at their disposal when you have two senators who are not willing to work with the party and you have a slim majority you have to keep that in mind and not blame the entire party for it so there's all that had to throw that out there but okay so let's talk about some of the things and what i wanted to ask you i know you wrote this in april um, and so you were talking like the first thing that you were talking about is the DNC can make their central job to educate the public about how much better things are using the tools the National Party infrastructure has at its disposal. So um, you list what they are. Do you think that they're doing that? So let me let me break this into two parts. Right. One is that um, I, part of what I've been arguing for the last over a year and spoken to people in the White House and everybody who's willing to listen mm-hmm. is that there's, an, there's a central contrast that we need at some point to establish as Democrats. And, and this is sort of facts. This is basic reality, which mm-hmm. is that since 1989, 45 million jobs have been created in America. 43 million of those 45 million jobs have been created under Democratic presidents. Wow. Um, the Biden, Biden is creating jobs at 50 times the rate that was created under uh, the last three Republican presidents combined. And that since 1989, when the Cold War ended and we entered a new age of globalization and a different economy, Democrats have repeatedly created growth and jobs um, and rising wages and smaller deficits, while Republicans have led us repeatedly to recession, spiraling deficits and economic decline. This is a bright line contrast right Mm -hmm. this is we did good they did really bad Mm -hmm. we did good repeatedly they did really bad repeatedly if you look at polling a majority of americans believe the republicans would be better on the economy than democrats and for me this is a this is a disconnect this is like I've, i've been quoted in other places saying this is like voters believing after world war ii that america didn't win the war right mm-hmm. this is this is a a recent poll showed people were asked 
were more jobs created last year or less or were jobs lost last year and last year we created more jobs in one year than any year in american history wow. right it was the biggest there was and th only 30 percent of americans thought more jobs were created and and that's a sky is blue sky is red thing that's not a i'm not feeling good about the economy or i don't think the economy is well that's like not knowing right. that America went through an extraordinary economic boom mm -hmm. in 2021. So I think we have an enormous challenge and opportunity ahead of us to educate the American people about how we in this modern age that we live have repeatedly made things better while Republicans have repeatedly made things worse. And it, which is not something that is well understood now by voters. And it's something that at some point we need to make sure voters understand because a it's our obligation as public leaders to educate the public on things that are important to them and the country needs to know that to your point about symmetry there's been one party that's been very successful in this age of globalization and managing complex problems there's another one that hasn't and we need we need to tell that story more competently but the second piece of that is about loudness the republicans are loud they're really loud and they're noisy and their their supporters are amplified, meaning that in this day of social media, the broadcast model of political communications was you ran ads and those ads just stopped with you on TV, right? Or in the mail. In the social media age, you can get an ad and you can, or a message or a meme or a tweet and you can amplify it. So the relationship of our political leaders to our partners, as I like to call them, are in, in the community, is very different now. People, average people like you, right, can do much more than we used to be able to do. It used to be able to that you could only go knock on doors in mm -hmm. your own neighborhood or in your state. Now you can make phone calls out of state into other places. You can give money to candidates in other places, right? Citizens can do much more. We're not couch potatoes like in the television age. We're partners in the fight, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think we have reoriented our politics around that. I know this from having been the chief strategist of the DCCC in 2018 and been you know, very involved in the strategy that flipped the house in 2018 that I worked on a lot of this countering disinformation and disinformation work. And what we found was that when we put out things onto the internet, there wasn't a conscious amplification of our messages through the network, whereas their side can take a single Fox News clip, a single tweet and move it to tens of millions of people swiftly we don't have an answer to that right we don't have anything like that on our side and it, it means that we're behind mm -hmm. that they are louder than we are and we need to start getting much more conscious about loudness and i think one of the most disappointing debates i think that have played out in the democratic party in recent years is this notion that twitter isn't real life and you know and that we can't go to social media because it's where all the crazy people are and all this I mean, you go you go where the voters are. Mm -hmm. If they're at a bagel shop, you go to the bagel shop, yeah. right? If they're on Twitter, you go to Twitter. Twitter is not extreme or moderate. It's just a place where people gather. And we've gotten all screwed up in our heads about all this. And we just got to go where people are. Our electorate is young, much younger than Republicans. A very high percentage of our voters are post-television people mm -hmm. and, and can't be reached through television ads. We are still struggling to make this transition into an amplified age. The person who I think is now leading that effort in the Democratic Party is John Fetterman. Mm -hmm. And Fetterman is doing extraordinary things with media, with amplification. They're training you know, their supporters to amplify and to be involved in the day-to-day -day information war. 
And as somebody who worked in the war room in 1992, I was part of the war room. I'm in the movie. If anyone's ever seen the movie, I'm a very young guy um, back then. But part of the idea of the war room was that we had to win in the information war every day. It was called the war room, right? It was about the information war. And it wasn't about rapid response. It was about getting out and defining your positions early and then defending them when they were attacked, right? It was about winning the information war every day. We have lost some of that, I think, in, in the modern Democratic Party for reasons that I'm not really sure about. But we have to take responsibility for the fact that as good as one of the reasons we're not doing better is that they're louder than we are. Yeah. And we can fix, we can fix that. And we have to stop being so reliant on television ads and um, and because that's a, that's an antiquated way of reaching voters. And our electorate is young and not old. Their electorate is older and they've out organized us in essence right on, on in the information space. We can fix that. And I will tell you, I've been a little disappointed. There hasn't been more of a party wide effort to do this. Um, but, you know, uh, John Fetterman, I think right now gives me hope. He's creating a, 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 an example that I think will be widely copied. Um, and it's exactly what I described. I mean, in my piece, what I talked about was that in 1992 in the war room, we were, you know, 20 kids, right, with Carvel and Stephanopoulos, you know, fighting out this battle every day. The way we need to think of the war room today is 4 million people mm -hmm. working together, wired together through the DNC and through our party committees, you know, fighting as partners in the fight and, and in winning the information space in an organized together way, right? And and at some point the DNC and the party committees are gonna step up and take responsibility for this, uh, but they haven't yet. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful that that's something that can get done in the coming years. Are you familiar with what Jamie, Har Jamie Harrison is doing with his 50 state strategy? I am. I think that the traditional way of organizing and the door knocking and the building up the state parties is very i'm 100 behind it i love jamie he's a great guy you know i was i ran for party chairman in 2005 against howard dean and mm -hmm. i lost in the final weekend i was a in the final round against dean and he outwore me in that race so i've i'm a party guy i've worked with the party over the years i am I'm, I'm very i'm a believer in the central role of the democratic party in our center left ecosystem. And I think what Jamie's doing is that they're working off of a slightly more traditional model mm -hmm. where it's more based on, you know, grassroots organizing, door knocking, you know, the old, the old fashioned yes. way that we reach people, right? I think we can complement all of that work with organizing better in the information space. And, um, and I think it's something that I don't think is gonna happen this election cycle, but it's right. gonna be critical but it happens in, in, you know, in the next presidential cycle. Um, and, um, and I'm going to continue to be a, a kind of a pain in the ass about this with all my friends and the family yeah. uh, to, for us to do a little bit better in this, in this regard. Well, you know, interestingly, I believe it was, um, I don't know, November of last year, something like that. I was in fear mode and I tweeted something out and I tagged Jamie and I didn't blame him per se. I just was like, the Democratic Party has to do more. And, you know, he, as a result, he was on my show. But also, he replied to me with, I thought was a quite thoughtful thread, um, explaining kind of what they're doing. But he also, I could tell, I mean, I think I made him upset because 
he felt like I was attacking the party. And he said, you know, in a time where the media is coming after us and, you know, we've, we're dealing with the Republican Party, we, we can't deal with Democrats also. I mean, I, I was certainly not attacking him, but I was, I was just frustrated and I was scared. And that's where it was coming from. And so, you know, I mean, I get... I absolutely get the need for people not to, especially this at this time right before the midterms, it is not the time to attack. But there are so many voters out there, and as you've just said, the Democratic Party has not yet figured out this loud messaging. So I guess, I, you know, this is a long-winded way to ask you, can how much pull do you have with the DNC and and? How do you think you can get them to listen to you more? <laughs> listen, I, I think I want to come back to something you said earlier that I think is really important. And this is sort of a, a, a internet etiquette or a Twitter social media etiquette thing is that I, I learned a long time ago that it's better that when you've got a negative sentiment or you're pissed off or you're, you want to you know, go after somebody, it's just better to not say anything at all. And in that, what we need more of in, is that I believe in this concept that campaigns are really about a vir- creating a virtuous cycle. Mm-hmm. That if you create positive energy in your campaign, you bring on supporters, they give you money, that money allows you to build a bigger campaign and go out and raise and bring in more supporters. And that virtuous cycle creates, you know, this is what Dean taught us all the way back in you know, the 2003 primary is that it create it feeds on itself and it keeps creating a bigger and bigger thing. This is mm-hmm. what Fetterman is doing. And that this notion of creating a virtuous cycle is really critical to understanding how to run modern politics. I think we all have to get very disciplined, much more disciplined than we are about having that tweet, that snarky thing, or pointing out somebody, they misspelled something on Twitter, right? Or, you know, I get so many people when I have a typo like letting me know that i made a typo it's like really like you're really using up a communication with me over letting me know that like i misspelled a word right yeah. like come on i mean and and i think we all have to get much more disciplined about the thing you said which is that every communication matters mm-hmm. every sentiment matters and we need to be creating more positive optimistic sentiment we're an optimistic party we're Mm -hmm. a party that loves america is confident in the work that we've done we know we are better than them and we have to express our love of country our understanding of the greatness of the democratic party far more aggressively than we do Mm -hmm. and and i reject the the doom and gloomism that is so prevalent some of this by the way i think that is manipulated by mm-hmm. yes. bad actors. There's mm-hmm. an enormous, I think that in general, on Twitter in particular, there's far more inauthentic speech than people really understand. I agree. And I and, and I do think that, that some of this is generated by, you know, people on our own side who mm-hmm. have, I don't think the best intentions, but I do think there's a lot of manipulated speech here. And the way that outside actors work is they create permission structure for people to say and do things. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you an example of this, right? And, and I know we're coming to the end, but I, I, there's been a thing I've been engaging with a little in my own Twitter feed. I've been putting out all this positive stuff about the election. And then there's this sentiment about, well, it doesn't really matter, Simon, because the election's <laughs> so gerrymandered. There's no way we can right. the house. And, and I was like, so I engaged somebody the other day who seemed like a real person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went to their feed and looked at them and I said, 
where is this coming from? Like, where's your data mm-hmm. backing up that if we win by two points, we can't win? And of course, he didn't have any data. Of course. And and he got very defensive. And he started attacking me on Twitter. And I was like, look, I, I just I just want you to know that like you putting out there, you're responding to me using data saying we got a shot, we got to go work hard, and then you crapping all over it without anything to back it up. What what is that? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the point of that interaction? And I do think that there are, it, it's disappointing to me that people in our family aren't more aware of both um, how hard this all is, mm-hmm. right? This isn't easy. It's not simple. We're a big, diverse, complicated party. We're ideologically diverse. We're, you know, gender diverse, all the diverse, all the mm-hmm. ways that one yeah. can be diverse, we are that way, yeah. right? Like we are diverse regionally, geographically. You know, men, women, colors, all sorts of colors, right? Ideological beliefs, left and right. Yeah. And managing all of that, keeping that all together is really hard. And we've got to be more gentle with one another, more accepting of our differences, more aware that we can disagree without being disagreeable. Um, and and I think if we can find our way through that, um, you know, we will achieve what we want to achieve together. And I think that what I want to end with, if we're getting to the end, is that I just want your your um, listeners to think about this. Imagine if next year we have the House and Senate. Hmm. Imagine next year all the things we can do. Yeah. All the things that we didn't do. Right. Even though we've Joe Biden, I think that there's going to be a reappraisal of his presidency and he'll go down in history as having achieved extraordinary things given COVID and insurrection, a very small majority in the House and the Senate, you know, go make your list, gun bill, right, climate bill, all these things, infrastructure, he did amazing things, right? So I think he's going to get a new look. But imagine if we have two more years. Yeah. And what I've been saying from the beginning of this election is somebody who went through 1994 and went through 2010, we just had to start this election saying we are not going to lose the House and Senate. The Democrats, here's an amazing stat, going all the way back, even though we've won more votes in seven out of eight national elections, right? If you go all the way back to 1992, we've only held, the we've only had control of Washington for six years in the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. We've only had control of Washington for six years in the last 42 years. And wow. yet we've done all of these things. Yeah. Getting two more years of control. <laughs> yeah is 33% more time in control over 42 years. It's a big deal. And if we got all this stuff done in the last two years, think about what we can do with two more years. Yes. yes, I hope that everybody listening here today takes this basic message from you and I, right? Because you and I are on the same page on this. Yes. Is that we got a shot. We can win this thing. We got to leave it all on the playing field, right? It's what the American people expect out of us. It's what they deserve. We are what we are offering is better than what they are, and we got to go fight like hell to make sure that we keep the House and the Senate so we have two more years of progress for the American people. That's what's at stake. I think we can do it, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to talk about all this with you and today. It, yeah, and I'm obviously grateful for your voice. And I just want to add that if we do get this bill passed, this green bill passed. Um, you know, we have to expand our majority because if we don't, the Republicans will just undo it. So um, they're going to undo everything that's been done that's positive for any of us aside from this green. So 
just keep that in mind, everybody. And Simon, it was absolutely great talking to you. Uh, before I let you go, tell everybody where to find you. Yep. Sure. This, I, I tweet way too much. So it's Simon, <laughs> no, you don't. Uh, <laughs> Simon WDC. I think my whole family thinks I tweet too much. But Simon <laughs> WDC, our website is mdn.org. Uh, and, um, you know, that's those are the two, my, my two homes on the Internet. And um, but I'm really uh, I'm grateful. You know, what is amazing, right, about the Internet age is, you know, just regular citizens like you, right? I'm just like you, by the way. Yeah. Like, I'm just a guy who <laughs> decided to go do all this for a living, right? Yeah. But we have to, you know, what we, we need is an age of big citizens, right? And you're being a big citizen every day by what you're doing and creating this community that you have. And I'm just really grateful every time I get to be with folks who decided that they're, you know, fuck it, I'm just going to go, you know, yeah. <laughs> go fight for my country and my future. And, and maybe, you know, my wife always jokes, someday I'll get a real job. But <laughs> I'm just really, I'm really grateful for the work that you do and for everyone out there who is taking time and energy to make their country better. It's, it's inspiring to me. Yes, and definitely follow. Oh, my God, he's such a great follow. Follow him. Also, I'm author Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y. Don't forget the extra E at the end of my name. My books are on Amazon. Simon, thank you so much. Okay. Have a, have a good day, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye.